0: Welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Yardana Osband. here with my friend Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Sukkah, daf kav page 28. This is really one of my favorite dafim because it contains very rich biographical information about some of our Tanaim. And all of you know that I love the biographies of the Tanaim. And we here are going to be focusing on Rabbi Eliezer ben Herkines and Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. So just to remind us, Rabbi Eliezer ben Herkines, who we started talking about yesterday, lives in the 1st and 2nd century. He's actually a Talmud of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. He's a um, colleague of Ravun Gamliel II, um, and uh, his sister is actually married, Ima Shalom, is married to Ravun Gamliel. Um, And he's very, very frequently mentioned in the Mishnah itself. He's also a Kohen. uh, And as we know, he sort of has this little bit of this harsher personality, which does come through uh, in today's talk, and then we're also going to talk about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, uh, who I think everybody knows the very famous Gemara that's in Gittin, uh, which talks about how he chooses to give up Yerushalayim uh, for the sake of preserving uh, Yavna and Chachmah, essentially taking the center of Judaism outside of Yerushalayim, outside of the temple, and moving it towards one that is centered around the Beit Midrash in Yavna. And so here we have a few passages. I'm not going to read necessarily all of them inside because they're long, but let's see how we do with time here. Tanah Rabbanon, Masah So Rabbi Eliezer was one time in the Upper Galil. And remember, this is also important because the Tanaim primarily uh, lived in the Galil. Ushalu, um, Halachot Sukkah. And they asked him 30 halachot about the halachot of Sukkah. Shteyim 12 of them he says I heard and 18 of them he said I did not hear. Now this story relates to the previous story which is about this encounter of Rabbi Eliezer in a sukkah with a student and whether or not they could put a sheet up and did this take place over sukkot? Did it take place on Shabbat? But part of what that story about was, was that he never heard the answer to this halacha. This was not something he learned directly from his teachers and therefore he wouldn't comment on it directly. And so here they ask him 30 questions and he says 12 of these he can answer because he knows he heard them from his teachers and 8 of them, 18 of them he says, lo shamati, I did not hear. Rabbi Yosei barav huda, huda says it's the opposite in terms of the numbers. 18 he says shamati, 12 he says lo shamati. And then they go on and say to him, amri lo, kol elemi Everything that you know is only from what you heard. But shmuah here does not really mean Shmua like heard. It means it has an implication more of like misora, right? That it's something that he has a direct link to the tradition of. Amar lahem, he answers them. He said, now you're going to force me to say something that I didn't hear from my teachers. And what does he mean by this? He means you're asking me to describe something or explain something about myself that's not halacha, that's not Torah. And I think in a way, what he's sort of saying here is is that you're asking me to have a conversation that I really consider almost in a way to be bital Torah. My whole life, nobody ever came before me in the Beit Midrash. And I never slept in the Beit Midrash, basically a deep sleep, or a, uh, you know, or a sort of brief nap. And again, I think this relates to, you know, what we learned to dap and go about um, all the issues about sleep. And nobody was ever left in the Beit Midrash when I left, meaning he always was the last to leave. I never spoke sort of idle conversations. I never spoke sort of idle conversations. And I never said anything that I did not hear from my teacher. And that's why he wouldn't answer those questions. Now, I think what's very clear from this is, yes, he's a very uh, obviously admirable person, but he was a person who was really able to live his life in a very strict way. I mean, think about all of the dedication it takes to be able to say that nobody ever saw him leave, come. He always was the first to come, the last to leave. He never spoke about anything else. Um, and uh you know, I, I think this is goes along. And as we develop how we understand Rabbi Eliezer, you know, this is very characteristic of this This sort of strict, dedicated. Um, and I do want to say there's a harshness to it, even the way he answers the students here, right? This, uh, like, you're basically asked, asking me to talk about something that I wouldn't necessarily talk about.
1: So that, but you're Dana, but you're yeah. Dana, I don't, I did not at all read in here that this conversation is a matter of Beetle Torah. I read this this as a matter of like I don't want to talk about myself. I that's not what I spend my time doing. Not because oh my goodness, what a what a devastating speaking words of Torah because you're asking me about myself, but because he doesn't want to talk about himself, right? Like it, that's not what he spends his time doing. He spends his time in learning, and then all of this here where he's saying, you know, everything I've done with my time is in some ways, right. a uh, an exclamation explanation or a defense, or uh, let's call it an explanation instead of a defense. Why it is that he didn't have these, answers, right. Cause, cause right. But look I, but at I his, think look how well he spends his time and he still didn't have an answer. So it's not that he I think of, his, it's- of his own, meaning it is think of his own accord, but, but, but it's not because he's an ignoramus. It's because he's not an ignoramus, and he didn't have the end. put in his time well. Well, he didn't
0: learn. It. I don't know. I that's how I understand this line of he's karkatuni lomardavar shalosh shamati mi p rebotai. You're making me talk about something that, like, it doesn't have anything to do with anything because my conversation, Rebbe Lazar's conversation, only revolves around my shamati. This is what I heard. This is what I learned. And again, I feel like I'm not translating the word shamati well. There's a there's a passing of the Masehur implication in what he's talking about here when he talks about Shamati versus Lo Shamati. So again, oh, I think 100%. this is the richness of, I think this is the richness of the text. We can both look at it very very differently and you know come out with different things. Um, so I'm going to now move on to Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai and these are some of the very famous Gemaras that give us a little bit about the personalities of Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai. I'm really love Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai now I think they move on to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai because he was some of this. The content of what they're going to say about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai relates to Rabbi Eliezer, but also Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is Rabbi Eliezer's teacher, and so I think there's a twofold reason why it appears here. Mi'amav lo sichar hulin, right? So again, this was similar to Rabbi Eliezer, right? He never uh, engaged in idle conversation. Below alach abba amot, below Torah, below Tfilin. Never walked more than four a moat without Torah, uh, meaning studying Torah without wearing tefillin. Nobody got there before him in the Beit Midrash. Uh, and again, these are all the descriptions of Rabbi Eliezer. And it makes sense. Rabbi Eliezer, who's so committed to tradition, emulates exactly his great teacher. Right? And he didn't contemplate now, as much as we say he's always talking about Torah, when he was in sort of like alleyways that were dirty, meaning uh, that were dirty basically with human excrement, he didn't think about Torah there. Below inia Right, nobody ever. Uh, there was no one left in the Beit Midrash when he left, meaning he was the last to leave. Below matu adam yoshev yoshev Um, And he always was sitting. Uh, uh, no person ever found him sitting and being quiet. In other words, you know, sort of being like uh, being active. Rather, he was always sitting and studying. He also never had his, he, he only opened the door for his students. In other words, I think this tells you one thing. First of all, he got there before his students. Second of all, that he didn't stand on his own cover. Again, the same characteristic of Rabbi Eliezer. He never taught anything, right, that he didn't hear from his rebbe directly. Um, right. And he never said that it was time to leave the Beit Midrash, except for of Pesach, because remember, he is living still in the time of the um, of the Beit Midrash, of the uh, uh, of the Beit HaMidash, Right. It gets destroyed over his time and also for Erev uh, for Yom, uh, Yom Kippur as well. And then finally, uh, we say, And so again, this brisa, I think, is the link here, which is teaching us that Rabbi Eliezer, he's Talmud, uh, did exactly as he did. And again, but it's based on that characteristic of lo amar davav shaloshamati mi pi rabbo. And so he tries to emulate him directly. But now here's the really interesting uh, uh, to me the more uh interesting piece here right where it goes on to say right that there were eight now just for the sake of time i'm not going to totally read the aside, that there are 80 tell me, of hillel has that game 30 of them were so great that the srina could have rested on them like moshe Rabinu. 30 of them right who uh could have the sun would have stood still for them like you know yoshua ben nun 20 were Oni okay so we get to 60 the best of all of them was Yonatan ben Uziel, and the Katan Chibikulan was Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai. So, if you think about that, that's really an amazing thing. Like, we just went through sort of saying how great um, uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai was, and now we sort of had this other, uh, you know, very strange uh, Brycek here that is basically saying that, you know, he was sort of the Katan. Now, one interpretation some of Farshim go is to say, he was the youngest, the Gadol is the oldest. But if you see the continuation of the Gemara here, uh, you know, it doesn't seem to be the case. And what's also interesting, is since Yonatan ben Uziel, right, it, we don't actually know a lot about him. Um, he's mentioned a few times in the Talmud, um, but certainly not as richly uh, or, or as Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. So that's also interesting for the one who is considered to be Gadol. Um, and then the Gemara goes on from there to talk about what he studied, right? Amur Aleva, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. And it lists everything that he learned, Bible and Mishnah and Gemara and Halachot and Agadot and all the small details of Torah and the small details of the Sofrim, of the scribes, right? Um, And he also knew Kalim v'chamarim because they wrote Kashot, right? In other words, he knew how to do all of the Midrash Halacha, how to darshan out the Torah itself. And he also knew Tikufot, right, which is understanding the, the, the seasons, numerology, which is the gematria, zichat, he understood the conversations of the angels and of, of demons and of wanderers, right? These were folktales that were used to sort of explain the Torah itself, um, parables of foxes, and any matter great and small. So again, we're sort of going back and forth between here's Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai who knew everything and look how dedicated he was. Then we have this strange brace about Hillel that sort of says he's the katan. And then we go back to what the depth of his Torah knowledge was. Then the Gemara wants to explain a little bit what the davar gadol is, the davar katan. It's interesting that the davar katan they mention here is Habayot Dabaii which is the disputes of and Raba. So it's using an example from something that happened well after Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai lived. So that's sort of interesting. Um, and then again, it goes to V'chim E'achar Sh'katan if we're going to say the Katan, right, of all of Hillel students were like this, Gadol b'kama. how great was the best, right? This uh, Yonatan Ben Uziel, Amru Allah, Al Yonatan Ben Uziel, Yosheva seik Patara Kol Oak, oh, Halab Mian Nisra. And on this Yonatan Ben Uziel, they say that he was so great that when a bird flew over him, right, the bird was immediately incinerated. Um, and again, I, You know, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? And I think about this when I think about what Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai did, that in a way he was a political leader. And I wonder if in a way the comment here is, is that, yes, we could have the Yonatan ben Huziel, right? But someone who's that great actually can't be in this world, right? The bird who flies over him, who didn't do anything ends up being incinerated. Whereas when you have somebody who's not as ungrateful level, even though I don't even understand what that means, because Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was far greater than me or anybody I know, that's the person who can seem to accomplish things from a very practical point of view. Um, and so I think there's, you know, I, I, I'm not, I think this is all meant to be complimentary to Rabbi and ben Zakai. But I also wonder if there's a piece here about like what exactly are they trying to get at about Yonatan Ben Uziel, and I also think it's interesting Yonatan Ben Uziel, as much as he's described as the gadol, we don't really know a lot about. And so, what does that say about the Talmud, like Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai, who's really sort of able to be in this world, versus the Talmud like uh, Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai, versus Rabbi Yonatan Ben Uziel, who sort of is so great his presence doesn't allow for the natural order of things, right? A bird can't even fly near him. And the other thing to just notice is sort of the Mesoar train chain that's mentioned here, that we're going from Hillel to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai to Rabbi Eliezer. So we're also thinking a lot about sort of the three generations here,
1: how we get from Hillel to the early Tanayim. So just one quick comment on Rabbi Yonatan ben Uziel. Um, for those of you who have spent any time in that, galilee area um amuka right is it known to be the and i don't know if it's accurate but the tradition is that it is the grave of Rev- yonatan Ben uziel and the tradition is that people go and they pray there specifically to get married the idea is that Rav yonatan uziel never got married because he was so dedicated to his pursuit of torah and that at some point he regretted this right and therefore he's the one who's supposed to you know assist in getting the the tfilot to hashem to you know, help people round out that aspect of their life that he didn't round out. Um, I am right now in a quandary because on the one hand, the entire rest of the DAF is so rich and it could be, you know, its own sheer in and of itself. And on the other hand, of course, there are things I would like to respond to your Dana, to what you said. The So I'm going to try to focus on the second part. And um, folks, you know, we do try to keep our, our relatively but every so often the daf 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 just, you know is so rich that we can't daf. just leave it. Um, I will just say that one of the things that I particularly love about these, these kinds of narration in the Gemara, me it's less about the biography, although I also do love that as a st- student of history, but there's also the phenomenon of what's happening in the way that they learn. And so for me, the discussion of this, both Rebealizer and Rebealizer and of to what extent were they willing, and in fact, they're not willing, to innovate, right? That they're always following a precedent in their study of halacha, I think is a very important, you know, uh, approach within the pillar. And then, of course, there are other people who are more willing to springboard off of the traditions that they have and infer and apply differently, right? As opposed to what they had from what Shamati, right? As opposed to what they had. I, I do think your data that you explained it very well that it's not just hearing or listening. Ears, but that it's you know to accept a tradition, um, and that is that is why it's this you know the same way we're going to accept it that we that we internalize this um material, so that's what's happening here. Okay, I want to very quickly jump to the mission, and as soon as we go through the mission, you'll understand why I um and there's so much to talk about in the second half of the staff. Um, and the last mission on the page until tomorrow, where the page, you know, is is pleasingly shorter. So if you have a person whose head, is, most of his body is in the sukkah, and the table is in the house, meaning somebody who's kind of, the sukkah is just on a porch, and it doesn't have enough room for a table, but he could sit in the sukkah, and his table's in his house. Beit Shammai says, nah, uh, that's, not, uh, that's not really keeping your sukkah. That's not really dwelling in your sukkah, eating in your sukkah. Beit hill says fine. He asks, or Beit asks. they say, didn't this happen? When- you know, we found exactly this is how he sat. His table was in the inside, and the rest of him was in the sukkah. davar, and nobody said a word to him. Meaning, nobody rebuked him. Nobody said, "You know, you're not really yotze, and maybe you want to move a bit, so move the table a bit, so that you can fulfill your obligation." so Bechame so says back, you're gonna, you're gonna infer from this particular event that took place that fine." They say, you know, it's not, they said to him, if you're, they said to them, I guess, Um, if you're, no, they said to Rev. if this is how you customarily, you know, keep sukkah, then you've never fulfilled the mitzvah of sukkah in life, right? That in fact, Rebbe Shammai says, them you've never fulfilled this mitzvah of sukkah ever, so don't tell us that we never said anything, we dafka said something and then the Mishnah continues and here of course is the tangle that you know, I'm very excited to get into and don't have a time to so women slaves, minors, are exempt from the mitzvah of sukkah a child who is young, who is old enough to no longer need his mother, whatever that might mean indeed obligated in Sukkot. Okay. we're gonna find out what exactly it means for a child to no longer need his mother it doesn't mean um it doesn't mean you know really fine and done with her shamai so then we've got a nice story here actually with the daughter in law of shamai of shamahazakin right she gave birth right before sukkot and shamai took off the a level of, I don't know what, plaster or something, you know, the substance that's in, on the roof, to leave the beams open so that the that the beams, I think, if I understand this correctly, it's now supposed to be like a sukkah, right? Because instead of having um, the actual ceiling there, it's no longer there. And in the Gemara, this particular story gets, I don't know, and it's more than elaboration, it's kind of rewritten. So now, of course, the question is women and children who are not obligated in the sukkah, and how many people, in fact, do sit, how many women do take upon themselves to sit in the sukkah? And this is, you know, we're not going to see all of it inside, but I strongly encourage you all to go look at it inside because it's exciting and it's salient. How do we know that women and slaves and minors are exempt from the mitzvah of sukkah? The um, Banan, so basically, this is simply inference or or derivation, depending on how you look at it, from the verses about Sukkah that they are they can be understood to mean you know only only the men um, to exclude the women because Ezra does not mean Okay, you know you could argue this, but this is the Gemara's tradition. And then Amar Mar HaEzrach lo Tzia Tanashim lo Neimer de Ezrach ben Nashim ben Gavri Mashma would we ever think that Ezrach would be, you know, citizens, people? Vatanya Ezrach ler abot Tanashim Ezrach yotchechay avot biinuhi alma Ezrach Gavri Mashma Amar Rava Hilchata Amar Raba. Sorry, Hilchata Ninhu v'asimachinhu Rabana Akrai. So what happens? All of this is really disgusting. When Ezrach gets used, and there are times that it's used to to mean the affliction of Yom Kippur, which of course the women are obligated in, so that you, the Gemara is questioning the Gemara, right, saying you can't claim that Ezrach is enough to exclude the women, because sometimes Ezrach Dafka includes the women. Um, okay, I want to jump down because, as I say, we're going to otherwise completely run out of time. Um, it's a long Sheer as it is. Um, okay, so then we understand, I'm just saying this outside, but if you look at it, you'll see that in the text, right, that men and women are equivalent, are equal in all mitzvot lotase, both in terms of the obligation and also in terms of the punishments, right? It's a little bit of an exaggeration because, for example, there are certain mitzvot lotase that specifically apply to men and things like sh- but But the Gemara here is talking about things where you we know that, of course, men and women are both obligated in Yom Kippur. So what's the problem with the sukkah? Like, why wouldn't we say that sukkah should be exactly like this? And the answer is no. We've got another um, interpretation here. I'm now at the very top of kamashman. I might have thought is like dwelling in a home, and dwelling in a home means husband and wife. So clearly, husband and wife should also be do due- we learn from this to the contrary that we that still women are exempt. Now, Rava gives another reason. So, what's happening is we would usually say that, and you then you pointed this out in preparation, right? That mitzvah, seisha, man gramma, positive time bound commandments, which sukkah is, is usually enough to exempt a woman and slaves and children, and that should be fine. That should be enough, except for that it's not enough because the Gemara is kind of like dancing around to find, but that that limu, that that interpretation of that verse is insufficient, and um, and then we've got another one, and now we've got a third one. Rav we need this halacha, wait, we needed a halacha from Moshe Mifinai to teach that women are exempt, meaning all... All of your interpretations, all of the, you know, your expectations of how Mitzvah Seshavang Ramah works, all of your interpretations of Ezra, none of it is going to hold water. Rav says you really need um, an actual Masorah to teach that, that women are exempt from Sukkah. Hamina, sorry, Hamisha Asar, Hamisha Asar, Mi'chag Hamatsot, Malahal, Nashim Chayevot, Avkan, Nashim Chayevot, Kamashwan, Otherwise, I would simply understand the same way that women are obligated in Pesach, which happens on the 15th of the month. So too here, it's the 15th of the month, and women should be obligated. We know that women are khayev, obligated in Pesach. They should be obligated in Sukkah. So we have to have a, an actual concrete tradition to exclude them. So th- this is, you know, it's difficult Gemara to come up with. You know, everybody knows that women are exempt from sitting in a sukkah. Everybody knows this. It's a mitzvah. as a grandma. But the Gemara is not treating it as so simply as that is at all. Um, okay. And then the Gemara goes, you know, is still dancing around all of this. I want to come back to this story. Uh, first of all, this point about the, the katan who doesn't need his mother, and then we'll talk about the Shamai story, and then we're gonna close. Katan sheno tzerichli mo. Um, hechidami katanche no tzerichli mo. Like, when would a child ever not need his mother? Amrei devey Rabbi Yannai kol shenifne v'aini mo mekanachto. So we're talking about somebody who, um, a child who, in this case, a child who goes to the bathroom and he doesn't need his mother to wipe. him. Rabbi Shimon Omer kol shnei oramishenato v'aino kore ima ima godlim nami karu. So the first claim is, the second claim rather, is that a child who wakes up in the night and doesn't call out, ima, ima, which we saw this as an example, I think in a and then the Gemara says, one second, but older kids also call after the mothers if they get up in the middle of the night. So how is this a good example? So rather, the child who wakes up and does not call out for his mother um, is older. And that is going to be um, that and maybe that means crying once, and maybe that means not crying out at all um, because you know they've passed the point of needing that. Um, and then lastly, on our daf today, um, even though there's a mission there, is get again we'll talk about it tomorrow. So this is the daughter-in-law of Shama Hazaken, Maaseh Listor. So the Gemara says, you know, don't we have an, you know, is is this example here to contradict what was happening about the halakhot and specifically of the minors and everything, the Gemara says what the text that you have is missing words. So talking about somebody who, when we've got Tanayam um, who are so meticulous to always be following in the traditions of the learning that they've already heard, in this case, to say that it's missing, um, well, again, tradition, specifically that this is something missing or they are employing creative license to understand that in fact it doesn't make sense so something must be missing. And this is of course the big debate about this, this category of chisuri mechzara which we've talked about in the past when the text is missing. This is what the Mishnah should have said. Shame Shama in general is taking a Machmir position. Shama et v'sikech al bishvil hakatan. So the is was machmir even with the very young children, so that when the daughter-in-law gave birth, right, and he takes off this thing from the roof, the plaster, the ceiling, I guess, really, and leaves the beams, right, then the beams are over the bed of the newborn, the newborn who's a katan, meaning not the katan who doesn't cry out anymore, but the katan who's truly a katan, the implication being even the baby, a a male baby, I guess, Needs to be, um, on, you know, in the uh, over Sukkot. and of course this is tricky because it really contradicts the the very main statement of the Mishnah, which says women and slaves and minors, including babies, are exempt.
0: Well, I you know this was just a long dive, lots of good stuff here, but I think we're just going to wrap it up. Uh, if you have any comments or things you want to share, please do so on our Facebook page. So with that, that's our DAP discussion for the day. us review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to our and Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this staff Very Rich staff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.